you have your scriptures, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. I'm going to read just the first five verses, but we're going to refer to more than that. I, I won't honestly take the time, hoping that you're familiar with this story. John 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill. The word ill, sickness, often in the New Testament is a Greek word that means basically weakness. And it has, the context determines its translation. It can mean actually weakness of some sort, not even physical, but other kinds. Although it means physical weakness a lot. But it can be a sickness, it can be a disease, it can be a lot of things. In this case, it is what we would call sickness. Lazarus of Bethany. By the way, if you didn't know, Lazarus is the Greek form of his name. And if you were here tonight, I'd ask you, does anybody know the Hebrew form, which probably got called far more than the Greek part of it, because all of his friends were mostly Hebrew, I would guess. But his name is Eleazar. I don't, I don't know if you know that, but that was probably what he mostly was called. And it says, in the village of Bethany, which is about two miles from Jerusalem, just east of the Mount of Olives. And he had a, Mary and his sister Martha. And, and I'm doing this story because I want to bring a point across, but also just to tap onto or build on last Wednesday when we talked about Luke 10 and Mary and Martha in a different way, what was essential and non-essential. I'm going to build on another story by them. And it was Mary, verse 2, was anointed the Lord with ointment, wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now you'll notice in our text, uh, the word sick is used a number of times in these first few verses. And that's what everybody should be drawing your attention to. Is over and over again, he's sick. He's ill. He has a weakness. It's crippling him and more. So the sisters sent to him saying, and, and, and this is going to be a couple things. Lord, he whom you love is ill. And now, you can send a message to Jesus and it actually gets to him and he takes it right away. Um, Those are indications that this family in Bethany was no average person in Jesus' life. You know he spent time there often. When he went to Jerusalem, he probably stayed there to get away from the crowds. And so they are very close to him. In fact, twice in the verse I just read you, also uh, sandwiched on the other side of verse 4, is how much he loved him. And, and later on in verse 36, the people are around the grave when Jesus weeps over Lazarus and the death and what's going on. Behold how he loved him. I mean, so th- that's going to be framing out our text. And so there's a very close-knit relationship. In chapter 11 here in verse 15, Jesus says, let's go see our friend Lazarus. So the disciples were his friend. Jesus was his friend. Jesus loved him. He loved the sisters. He came in their house. They felt free to send messengers, and they thought that the messengers would get there and Jesus would respond because that's the kind of relationship they had with him. And I want to build an argument because there's two-pronged approach to how we need to look at and respond to suffering tonight, and they're going to be right here together and then develop them a little bit later. So In between the two love verses, verse 4 reads, But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness, again, there it is, just over and over again, he's he's ill, he's very sick, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So that, see the purpose? 
so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I asked my question to myself this week. Um, why did my mom get dementia when she was 70? The last nine years of her life, not quite even, uh, she didn't even know who my dad was or any of us. Um, my dad gained a friend through going every day to see my mom in the ward that she was in for dementia patients. And the guy named Gary, and who came to my mom and dad's funeral, and uh, we stay in contact till this day. Um, he knows the Lord. And uh, Gary's wife got dementia when she was 52 and just died about a week or a little over a week ago, still in her 50s. Got to ask, don't you? Why? Why does she get it? Why did my mom get it? Why did Sandy Steele need a kidney transplant? And how her leg is swollen and she doesn't get around very well. We could ask John McAllister, and if you've never read it, you should. I have a copy. It's an older book in the sense that it's probably 20 years old. Uh, Joni Erickson Tata, which is a story in and of herself, right, about suffering. You should read her stuff. But she wrote a book with Steve Estes, and the name of the book is When God Weeps. And in it, she tells the story of John McAllister, who was a guy like herself. Um, they had been in a wheelchair for 30 years. He was a big guy before he had nerve damage in his body, serious, severe nerve damage, six foot three, large frame, big guy, muscular. He'd been reduced to a wheelchair for the last three decades. Um, and she was friends with him. And she tells the story about one night when he um, had to be, every day he was fed through a tube per- permanently. And in one of his correspondence with her, he said, Joni, you know, it's hard to say grace when you're getting fed through a tube. Imagine bowing your head and thanking God for the food you're eating as you're not really eating and as it's just given to you through a tube every single meal. But he said one night he was laying in the bed and being in the bed was very bad because it was very dark. And laying down, the gravity pushed down on his chest and he couldn't breathe very well, which means he often couldn't talk very much while he is sleeping, certainly couldn't move because he has no movement in his legs at all. And it was hard for him to even move whatsoever. And one night, um, he had a feeding tube and they didn't clean him up as well as they had at other nights. And it started with one ant, he said. And then a hundred ants. And before he was done, thousands of ants through his hair, through his eyes, through his nose, everywhere, all night, because he couldn't find the air to make any noise to call for help from anyone. And when they came in the morning, they still found residue of ants all over his body, although the bulk of the silent army had gone. And you ask the question, why? John McAllister wrote, My God can see in the dark, but I still don't know why. I still don't know why. We all ask questions like that. The Apostle Paul has his shirt taken off. He's strapped to a post. And they say that you're only supposed to receive nine, 
39 stripes. And he takes them. And by the time number 25 or 30 rolls around, he is face down in the dust, hoping that he makes it through. And his back looks like it's been torn to ribbons. Um, And not the only time, by the way, four other times for the total of five that happens to him. And when you read in 2 Corinthians all the other things that happened to him, you look at it and you say, why? Why would all that happen? We like to say this, God, keep the heat down to a manageable level in my life. All of us would say we expect a little suffering, but not flogging, not ants, not a tube, not dementia. But what when it happens when it comes? What happens when it happens to you or those that you love? See, we're going to need answers for the head and for the heart. And that's, that's exactly what this passage does. It really supplies, in my estimation, both of them. And so I want to take a look at them tonight because we do need them both. I don't know if you remember um, a number of years ago on New Year's Eve, I believe it was, Maybe seven, maybe not, maybe not that many years ago, but close. We watched God is Not Dead, the very first one. And remember on there was a professor, his name was Jeffrey Radisson, and he was a stout atheist, and he argued with the main character in the movie about the existence of God and Jesus and what he had done, and only to find out that Mr. Radisson had grown up going to church, and his mom was a Christian, and he learned all the stories and knew about Jesus. But what had happened to him and how he had turned to become an atheist and give up his faith if he had one in God was when he was 10, his mom got cancer. And he prayed and prayed and prayed and asked God to heal her, and he never did, and his mom died. And his response changed the entire direction of his life. See, it does matter. It it matters how we view suffering. It matters how we see COVID-19 and its results that take place in our lives and the lives of others. It matters how we see sickness and death and how we respond because it can change everything in our life. And and I want to take from this text two things tonight. And I want you to keep them together because I'm going to tell you up front, it's not easy to keep these two things together. And at first, you're going to think that they are almost completely at odds with one another. But they are there. In fact, they're side by side in this text. And I want to keep them side by side in your life and mine. And I want to help you, help you to show you how to do that tonight. So one's an answer to the head, I think, and one's more of an answer to the heart. Or it might be a little bit of a dichotomy that's not totally true, but I'm going to frame it that way tonight. But let me show you a couple things. First of all, if you look in our text, I want you to see that sickness and death, particularly COVID-19 in our context, but really broadening that to about anything that comes along in our life, Um, they are purposeful, if I can say that to you. They're purposeful. And Jesus said in verse 4, this illness does not lead to death. Now, I love the ESV, not convinced that that's the greatest translation in my estimation because it's a little confusing because you might think it's almost misleading because it did lead to death. I mean, he died. So obviously Jesus is not telling a lie, but... I think the better word used here might be this. Um, this illness does not or not lead to the purpose of death. Or the purpose for it is not death. And then he follows it up 
um, with a very purpose clause. So I think it might be better translated with the word that's used there that this illness, its purpose is not just leading to death. In other words, his physical death is not the thing that's going on here. It's not the main thing. It's not the purpose of it, ultimately. There's a bigger purpose to it. Um, and, and that's going to re- give us an understanding of what God's doing. So let me put that in your mind. This is the head, the head value or the head reason that we need in our, our minds. Can I tell you this? That everything that happens, including every sickness, every disease, every surgery, every doctor's appointment, everything about COVID-19 is purposeful. Um, let me tell you this. It's not random. It's not meaningless. It's not by chance, rather, but to provide an opportunity for God, as Jesus would put it, to manifest his glory. That's important. Now, I'm going to give you some examples, and you can write them down. Um, in our very, the same book that we're in, John 9 and verse 3, there was a misunderstanding of why God allowed certain things to happen to people especially if they were severe. John 9, 3 talks about the man who was born blind from birth. And Jesus has to clarify for the disciples, no, there are, that's not the purpose. And then in the negative part, the, that wasn't the true purpose, he says, it, it is not that this man sinned or his parents. In other words, this blindness from birth is not a result of some wickedness he had done or something his parents had done, and now it's being taken out on his son. That's not what it was. So Jesus says, this is not the purpose. It's not that, but that, what? The, that the works of God might be displayed in him. You know why he was born blind and why some people are deaf and some people can't talk and others can't see and some people can't walk and on and on the list goes? God says, because I want to display my works and they are my billboard. Can I say it reverently? They are advertisements for how great God is. And how his power is displayed in weakness. 12.22, or John 12.23, Jesus says this of his own death, ready? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus talks about his own death, the most torturous, shameful, hideous suffering. And that's only the physical aspect. When you put the spiritual infinitely difficult Death possible, and Jesus talks about that death planned and orchestrated by God as an issue of him being glorified. 13 of John's Gospel, verses 31 and 32. Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Peter, later at the end of this very Gospel, in chapter 21 and verse 15, is told by Jesus that someday when Peter is older, After all these years of faithfulness and everything Peter's done for Jesus, this is how his life's going to end. They're going to take you and stretch out your hands and feet and take you somewhere you don't want to go. And it says in verse 15, Thus he said to him to signify what kind of death that he would glorify God. So tradition says he was crucified upside down, whether that's his choice, as some would say, or whether they did that to mock him. Uh, We're not really sure. But here's how we know. Peter was crucified like Jesus in a very shameful, agonizing death. And Jesus says, I want to tell you up front, this is how you're going to glorify me. It's a matter of glory. So blindness and flogging and crucifixion and sickness and death and its result, 
from many of those things and others, can they really be considered ways that God works in our life to bring him glory? This illness, Jesus says, it doesn't have, the purpose of it, it really isn't death. A better purpose is, is that brings God glory. So how are we to understand God's purposes when it comes to COVID-19 and other things like it? Can you flip over real quick with me? And I want to ask you a question that the people around the tomb were asking that day. And I think it really is the question that a lot of people are asking today. Christian and non-Christian alike. In John 11 and verse 37, and you may not say it this eloquently, but you have probably thought it if you had a loved one die or someone you knew has had COVID-19 and they've passed away. Here's what you would ask, perhaps. But some of them said, verse 37, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? You know what they're asking? Jesus, we've seen the power you have. You can prevent people from dying from sickness. Isn't it a shame that he didn't? I mean, listen to Mary and Martha, who must have been talking together, because when they see Jesus four days after Lazarus' death, and he didn't show up on time, they say virtually identical statements to him. Lord, if you had been here, you see the indirect rebuke. They're rebuking, you know what they're saying? You have power, and if you would have come... Really almost, if you would have cared to hustle and get here on time, you could have prevented Lazarus from dying. And aren't the people around the tomb saying pretty much the same thing? I mean, he opened the eyes of the blind. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from... This sickness really shouldn't have been a problem. So we say in our modern versions, right? Why me? We say, why this? Why now? We have our own if statements, don't we, to Jesus? Oh, Lord, if you really cared, right? If you had really showed up, then I wouldn't have lost my job. Lord, if you had been here, and if you were working, and you're the God you say that you are, then my grandmother wouldn't have died from COVID-19, and so-and-so wouldn't be in the hospital, and it wouldn't have totally messed up everybody's life. And we throw out our if questions, don't we? And it's hard for us. It's hard for us to see, really, isn't it? That God's glory is what, is what Jesus is after. And that's what God wants more than anything else in our sicknesses. And so here, here's the thing. Sickness and death are purposeful. And, and can I say this? I want to broaden it up and get the picture a little bit bigger for you. Because in our chapter... And not much emphasis is put on the end of this chapter, more of the Lazarus story. But God is purposeful in all the things that he does. Your sickness, your loved one's sickness, your family, your friend, and even their death. But at the end of the chapter, um, people report to the religious leaders that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And they become very worried to the point where they say, hey, if we don't do something, everyone's going to believe on Jesus. And they're going to come, the Romans are going to come, and they're going to take our nation and destroy it and take our place, which probably refers to the temple. We're going to lose our worship in the temple. We're going to be brutally killed and Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And so Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, stood up and said, you don't know anything. And he starts talking about, don't you know that one man has to die for the whole nation? 
And the Bible goes on to say in verses 51 and 52 of this chapter that he calls what Caiaphas, who is not a believer in Jesus at all, in fact, one of the leading men who wants to have Jesus crucified and is part of plotting his death from this day forward, the Bible says that he prophesied, that he was actually, in his words, being prophetic. Isn't it amazing that God is purposeful in sicknesses and control of disease and death He's also control of lost people, people in high up positions. In fact, to the very words that come out of their mouth, they can be actually prophecy. And it was true because Jesus would be the one who died for everything. So can I tell you this? Nothing, absolutely nothing, is without intention and purpose in God's mind, including COVID-19. And so Jesus says, let me say it again, that Lazarus' sickness wasn't for the purpose of death. It was for the purpose of the glory of God. So now that we know that in our minds and try to wrap our minds around it, what does that mean for you and me? Well, we have to ask the question, don't we? Well, how does that help me to respond? Well, here's what it has to do. It has to help you to say this, that I'm not the main thing going on here. As hard as it is when you love someone or it's yourself, uh, maybe even more so, I don't know. But you know what God's after? That it's not as much your healing or your well-being, although he cares about that. We're going to get to that. The number one thing in God's view, in sickness and in even your death, is if you will glorify him. Epaphroditus was ill. You can read it for yourself in Philippians 2. The very same word is used here. You know how he responds to his illness that he got so sick because he was serving the Lord in the Philippians and Paul? The Bible says that even in his sickness that was practically killing him, when the Philippians realized he was sick, it it distressed him that they had heard about him being sick. I mean, here was a guy who was working so hard for the kingdom that it literally was killing him, and he was sick because of it. But you know what he was worried about? Not himself. Others. He didn't want the Philippians to think that they needed to do anything for him because he didn't want to burden them with anything. And the Bible says a couple different times, Philippians 2.27, that he was near to death. Another text, it says that in verse 30, that he nearly died for the work of Christ. And it's interesting. Can I, let me point this out to you, technical, but good. The word in verse 30, he nearly died, is the same word, the exact two Greek words used of Jesus in chapter 2 earlier. You know the verses, but this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus 2.5, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to, to, to grasp after being like God, but made himself of no reputation, was in the form of a servant, and came in the fashion of man, and humbled himself, and became, listen, obedient unto death, unto death. He went, that, and that's the exact same phrase. And, and the idea is, see how Jesus humbled himself and became and thought about others, 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 others. Two, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. That our greatest ambitions should not be ourselves, but others. Jesus exemplifies it all the way unto death. And the same word is Epaphroditus. He was thinking about others. Even when he was sick so much that the number one thing in his life was others. Even unto death. Same two words. And that's what it means to live for the glory of God. To the glory of God means that my response in my sickness and my difficulty is to make so much of God when making much of other people. Dorcas is another illustration of that. In Acts chapter 9, 
The Bible describes her in verses 36 through 43 as this. She was full of good works. And I think literally it means even acts of charity. So her good works, here's what they were. They were acts of charity. And if you read the rest of the text, you'll find that she made things for widows. She made clothes for them, dresses for them, we would say today, cloaks for them when they couldn't do it themselves. And that's pretty interesting because Dorcas was no ordinary woman because if you read the book of Acts, you'll find that it was only very few people that were described by being full of grace, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. I mean, people like Peter, Paul, Stephen, Philip, Barnabas. I mean, these are the kind of people that get the description behind their name, full of, full of grace, faith, Holy Spirit. She's full of good works, so this woman is amazing. But she gets sick, the Bible says. A great Christian woman and disciple, Tabitha, or she's called Dorcas, she gets sick. Why? She's doing so many good things. She's really serving the Lord. She's kind of a one-of-a-kind woman in the early church. But she gets sick and she dies. Why? Peter is nearby, so he makes a quick trip, almost 20 miles actually, (laughs) over to Joppa. And they've already washed her body. They put her in an upper room. You know, Jewish people bury them the same day. So he makes it there. And she's been dead for most of the day. She, he puts everybody out. And he says, Tabitha, arise. And he raises her from the dead. And you know what the Bible says at the end? And he presents her to all the saints and all the widows. And many people in Joppa believed. It is almost identical to what happens when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. It says, and many people believed in him. And that's why the religious leaders get so angry. Can I tell you this? That's what God's glory is about. Why does God, what's the purpose? The glory of God. And how does that manifest it? Well, God's glory is seen so that people can see who he is and many believe on him. So we we have to keep that in our minds. We have to have that purpose glued and cemented into our hearts that when God brings sickness and God brings suffering and even death in our life, it is for his glory. There is a ministry by displaying his greatness he wants to have in the lives of other people that perhaps he couldn't have any other way. And God uses even the sufferings in our lives to accomplish those things. The other side of the coin, if you can flip it over, we need both. We need a reason in our head and we need a reason in our heart. And that's why the phrase glory of God, which begins our text, it ends our text in verse 40, when he says to Martha, didn't I say to you, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? So you have this framework working side by side. You have the glory of God framework. But you also have the love of God framework because the chapter begins with he loved them. Verse 3, he loved them. Verse 5, and everybody around the tomb in verse 36 at the end of it says, Behold how he loved them. So how do you coincide those? I mean, how do those go together? It looks like God is willing to do anything in your life, even have you die, just to bring him glory. I mean, here's my thought. I wrote down, that sounds sterile. It sounds stoic and certainly stayed. And you might believe for a second that his delays are a result of distance and detachment. I mean, he doesn't come. He doesn't show up on time. I mean, he's there during the fourth day. You know, they sit Shiva, and that means they mourn for seven days, and so Jesus makes it toward the half, second half of that. But he didn't make it on time. 
And he comes to the tomb and everyone's there and they're all weeping. But if you're not careful, you might think, wow, does he really care? And I can tell you this, Mary and Martha questioned it and they were close to him. Friends, almost you might consider family. And they wonder, does Jesus really care? And here's the thing, isn't it? We have to keep, listen, you won't understand what the love of God is if you don't understand what the glory of God is because the one controls the other. If all you think is God is lopsided and all you think about or know about him is you think he's love, then you're going to think that some of the things he doesn't do, the way you think and when you think, are, going to dem- are demonstrations that he may not really care and you begin to doubt. He is concerned for you. But but if those love situations are controlled by the glory of God and that you let his number one purpose is to make much of God, who's infinitely great, then you're going to understand why his love takes the forms in your life that it does. And see, those two things at the end of the text are brought together. In verse 35, look what it says. See how he loved him. So the, the narrator, John, wants you to say, see, see, in this passage, there's the love of God. And then in verse 40, a few verses later, he says, Jesus says to Martha, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. See both of the statements? See the love of God. See the glory of God. And you need, and I need to see both. We need both of them. The disciples thought in the middle of the sea, The storm was crashing into their boat and they were going to die. And master, master, we're perishing. Don't you care? (laughs) See, the storm's not being silenced. Things aren't getting better. My prayer isn't answered. The sickness isn't going away. The job isn't here yet. My marriage is falling apart. Don't you care? But see, if we only understand that part of God, and we don't understand his aim and his purpose in all things is the glory of God, we really aren't going to know him. And Paul said in your sufferings, discovering more about God and knowing him is the greatest thing. Philippians 3.10, that I might know him. Listen to this. We all love that. Next phrase we're going to love. And the power of his resurrection. We all want that. We don't want sicknesses. And the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul knew it. The glory of God, the love of God, they go together. The songwriter, old him, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because he lives, I know he holds the future, and what life is worth living just because he lives. See, Jesus is alive, which means he had the power to raise Lazarus from the dead. And what we need to do is to believe. What are we believing, though? We believe in two things. That the glory of God and the love of God are not at odds with one another. The probably most common word repeated in the book of John is the word believe. And it's used throughout our text, verse 15, 25, 26, 40, 42, 45, 48. The disciples, Jesus said, you know why I didn't show up? On time, so you would believe. Martha, don't you believe this? Mary, don't you believe? The people afterwards believed on Jesus. The Jews believed on Jesus. And the religious leaders were thinking everyone's going to believe on him. So you have to ask yourself the question, 
what does your suffering and the illnesses and the sicknesses and even the death of others that we know and love, what does it say about what you think of God? What do you believe about him? Are your views unbalanced or imbalanced and lopsided? Are you judging God and what his love is because you don't see his glory? It's not the aim and purpose of everything in your life. And so when God doesn't measure up or match up to all the things you want him to do, and he doesn't love you the way that you define and how you want him to, then it's hard to continue to believe in him. You see, tonight we have a choice, don't we, to respond to suffering, to COVID-19. What is God doing? He's doing what he does in everything he does. He's seeking his own glory. And he wants you to join him. He wants you to humbly say, God, you know what I most want if I get COVID-19 on others? I want you to be glorified. I want you to become great. I want people to see your infinite value and worth. And one of the best ways I can do that is how I treat other people and how I live for them and serve them and sacrifice for them. Jesus did that. He did it by dying on a cross for our sins. Is that what you believe? Is the glory of God paramount in your life and in your responses to the things that you go through and the difficulties that you face? If so, you will have a grip and better understand the ways that God loves you in your life. Don't read it because Pastor Lardy, I think, is going to reference it this Sunday night. But if you read Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, Paul says, we are killed all the day long. We were counted as sheep for the slaughter. And then he has a list of all these things. Naked, famine, peril, sword, all these things. And then he says this, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. But how does the verse start? In all these things. Did you think that that's love? God didn't rescue Paul from nakedness, peril, sword, persecution, No, in them he did. And that's why Paul could respond and say, I'm a victor. You're a victor? Look at your back. Are you in victory? Look look how you died. They cut your head off. Is that victory? Paul would say, yes, because I know the glory of God controls how I view the love of God. And he has loved me so much that he's made me a conqueror through all these things. And he was persuaded of this, that life, nor death, nor angels, nor principality, nor things and things in heaven or on earth. He says, invisible or invisible. None of them can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. It didn't make him distressed or depressed to go through those things. No, you know what? It made him confident because he knew what God's love was all about. Do you? Do you believe this? Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us tonight to respond to COVID-19 in our lives, the lives of those we care about, and through any difficulty, sickness or disease or suffering that we face. It's not just that. But help us to keep those two things together. It'd be easy to have one or the other. But we have a God who stands at the tomb who's living for the glory of God 
and follows the purposes of God, even when no one understands why in the world he would ever be late, but he can stand at the tomb and he can cry. He can weep. He is not a distant deity. He is not some stoic savior. He feels what we feel and he hurts when we hurt. In fact, he told Saul on the Damascus Road, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When, we, when he persecuted Christians, Jesus said, it's the same as if you're doing it to me. You understand, you sympathize. You went through all those things without sin. Father, help us to follow in your steps. Help us to respond to all the things that we face, all the suffering, the sickness, and have as the greatest aim of our life the glory of God and may it overflow into a clearer, more understanding and embracing of the love that you have for us that was issued in its greatest way through the suffering of the cross. May we grasp that in our heads and in our hearts that you might be glorified and we might be loved. In your precious name we pray. Amen.